Hey everyone, imagine a sci-fi world made up of sentient objects. Today's book is Bossy Pants by Tina Fey. Boy, was it not what I expected. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and just like Tina Fey, I too once auditioned for Saturday Night Live. I'll tell that story on this episode. I didn't make it on, even though I have a totally clean Twitter history. And I'm David Vance. I haven't made it onto SNL, but I could if I wanted Bossy Pants is an autobiographical comedy book by Tina Fey, full of honest stories and applicable lessons learned from a career in comedy. It's sold over two and a half million copies, so it reminds me of the autobiography that I will write someday. And this is The Book Pile. This person calls himself Disney Movie Lover. The subject is high quality. And he or she says, it's funny and informative. I love the balance. Well, Disney Movie Lover, you have a great middle name. And we love (laughs) that you love things that eventually be worth a billion dollars. A billion dollars. Both us and Disney. (laughs) Yep, you got the joke, Dave. (laughs) All right, and without further ado, here are our favorite lessons from Bossy Pants. Lesson one, there are no mistakes, only opportunities. Also, I found out from my mom this year that I was an opportunity. So she gives this example from improv. She says, say you go out on stage, you know, pretending to be a cop on a bike, but your scene partner calls you a hamster on a hamster wheel. At first, that would seem to us like it's a mistake in the scene. But she says, that's not a mistake. Now you're just a hamster. And the scene can go in a funny direction from there. She says, in improv, there are no mistakes, only beautiful, happy accidents. Many of the world's greatest discoveries have been by accident. Look at the Reese's peanut butter cup or Botox. I love that idea of taking a mistake and alchemizing it into something great. Herbie Hancock told this story about playing with Miles Davis this time. And Miles was in the middle of a solo. And Herbie played the wrong chord, and he thought that he had ruined Miles' solo. But Miles just paused, and then he played some notes that made that chord the right chord. And Herbie says, I judged what I had played. Miles just accepted it as something new that had happened. So then Herbie just did that constantly. (laughs) (laughs) So from that, the lesson Herbie took away was, try to make anything that happens into something of value. That's why I don't see elephants, I just see ivory. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> My piano teacher had a piano with ivory keys, and no I, way. I hate, hate the elephants are killed for ivory, but it was the most amazing, like, feeling <laughs> piano I've ever had. I think this goes along with your idea of the, the reason why we're okay eating hamburgers is because we're not the ones stabbing the cows personally. <laughs> I would have sat down at that piano and played Baby Mine from Dumbo. <laughs> So you see the value of accidents in other fields as well. So in medicine, accidents have given us just huge breakthroughs. Penicillin, chemotherapy, Viagra, the big ones. Do you know how we discovered chemotherapy? No. So World War II, this U.S. ship gets hit by a bomb, and the ship was illegally carrying mustard gas. So a thousand people got exposed, and a doctor comes and looks at some autopsies and goes, oh, this would work on cancer. And then we covered it all up. So I want to do a sketch on the officer who had to pitch the medical world and was like, okay, don't ask me how I know this. (laughs) Have we tried mustard gas? (laughs) 
I love those stories of things that were accidentally invented. It was Wheaties where someone accidentally spilled like wheat gruel onto a stove and it burned into flakes. So I would just love if both of those people were at a dinner party and the chemo <laughs> guy told his story and then the Wheaties guys just like fixes his tie and he's like, you think that's a story? Anyway, all this to say, in whatever realm of your life, I think there's a lot of value in trying to turn your mistakes into something valuable. So there's a quote from T.S. Eliot. He said, success is relative. It is what we can make of the mess we have made of things. Kellen, in the edit, can you delete any of my jokes that didn't work? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson two, perfect is overrated. So this is a direct quote from Tina Fey, and it's also the reason why, before going out in public, I generally mess up my gorgeous head of hair, or why I sometimes stammer on this podcast is to avoid the perception of being perfect. Apparently Lincoln, apparently he would deliberately add little slips into his speech and little mannerisms to make himself seem like more of a man of the people. (laughs) I love that he's like, how can I seem more like regular people? When the average height right now is 5'3", I'm already six foot, and I'm going to wear boots and a top hat. (laughs) That'll really make me fit in. At least if I'm stuttering, people will think I'm just like them. (laughs) So Tita Fey brings up this concept when talking about the writing process, and it applies to, to SNL's breakneck speed sketch writing process, where they're writing several sketches in a week. Uh, sometimes the day before the show, like especially when something huge happens in the news that Friday. And she did Weekend Update, which she's told the story and so have other writers. Weekend Update always gets the lowest priority. So they'll be writing jokes like day of, hours before the live shoot. But this also applies to any, write, any writer or creator, whether you have like a short story in college due uh, in class next week, or you're writing a novel on your own. Tina Fey says... Perfect is overrated. Don't be too precious about your writing. Don't be too worried about your permanent record. But ultimately, you'll get better at whatever you're doing if you just do it over and over without being too precious about it. So rather than setting your heart on it and trying to get it just right for years. So in other words, don't spend five years writing that one novel. Spend five years writing five novels. The first one might be crap, but each one will improve so much more after after the next. On that subject about not being too precious about your work, in a couple of weeks, we're going to do Hamilton the Revolution about the creation of Hamilton. And it's funny how Lynn, in his way, was kind of the polar opposite, just in that Hamilton took seven years and they stayed on off-Broadway longer than they maybe necessarily needed to just to get it perfect. So I'm excited to do that episode and kind of interrogate the tug of war between those two approaches. But even in his way, I think Lynn taking the time he did still took this kind of approach where you try a million ideas, you're not too precious about them, you keep the ones that don't, and you get rid of the ones that didn't. So even the people who do take a long time to produce something, they're still kind of following this approach of generating a lot and not being self-conscious about the bad ideas. And again, we touched in the originals episode on the fact that, you know, Shakespeare, at the same time that he was creating some of his best work, he was also putting out some of his worst work. We just don't remember the bad work. We, re- we remember the good stuff because that's what's stuck. But then the internet remembers it forever. <laughs> right. Famously, there are huge subreddits on Timon of Athens. <laughs> 
That is a toxic fandom. By the way, this is like one of the funniest books that I've ever read. There were so many, so many laugh out loud moments. Yeah. While she's telling her life story, she applies this principle, like not only in the sense of writing perfect scripts, but also like in her personal appearance. Something that was very re- refreshing about it was like her honesty about the, the things that she likes about herself, but also revealing like in joke form scattered throughout the book, the things that she doesn't like. It's not even really with the attitude that she doesn't like things about her body. It's more comparing aspects of her body that are otherwise that don't live up to like magazine standards. There's this great section in the book where she gives advice for how to handle posing during a photo shoot. During her chapter on photo shoots, which is amazing, it's titled Amazing, Gorgeous, Not Like That. (laughs) She says, posing for a successful glamour portrait is very simple. Start with the basics. Turn sideways, lean back against the wall, move your chin forward to elongate your neck, relax your shoulders, make angles wherever possible. If you're over 24, smile at all times. Keep your arms slightly away from your sides so as not to smush them and make them look larger. Suck your stomach up and in and wrap your buttocks toward the back. Pilates style. Be yourself. (laughs) She says, when you look into the lens, imagine you are looking at a dear friend, but not a friend who would laugh at you for jetting out your chin while arching your back against a fake wall. (laughs) (laughs) It's so great. It's fun too, though, because she's not, she doesn't demonize celebrity or, or demonize the fashion industry. She tells you how much fun she has doing it, yeah. but she also knows to be aware about what it can do to you. She makes jokes about how your your first photo shoot, you feel like this is amazing, like this isn't me, how is this possible? And then by the fifth photo shoot, you're like, this caviar is warm and disgusting. <laughs> It's funny too what she says about uh, if you're if you're over twenty four smile at all times because right now we're in we're in Dave's room this is the first time that I've been here and he has a picture like a glam sort of a glammed picture of that's Lord right the musician <laughs> yeah. Lord and she is staring so <laughs> stoically at me. <laughs> okay, lesson three: go down the water slide. So she tells the lesson she learned from Lauren Michaels. You have to try your hardest to be at the top of your game and improve every joke you can until the last possible second, and then you have to let go. You can't be that kid standing at the top of the water slide overthinking it. You have to go down the chute. And I'm from a generation where a lot of people died on water slides. (laughs) So I love this because I've realized in my own creativity, it's better for me to be wrong quick and then fix it than to try forever to make something perfect. So there's this metaphor from Andrew Stanton, who's this great director. He did Finding Nemo, Wally, John Carter. And he says, <laughs> and he says creativity is like you're in a battle and you're between two hills and you don't know which one to attack. You can sit in the valley forever stewing and finally choose a hill and maybe it's the right one. Or you can just charge up a hill quick. And if it's the wrong one, you just go down and you charge up the other one. And more and more, I'm finding that I'm in that second group where I'd rather be wrong quick and then fix it than take forever stewing on the creative choice. Also, I think the battle metaphor is great advice for art and awful advice for battles. (laughs) (laughs) Like you shouldn't be like, okay, let's try attacking Iraq. Okay, no. Okay, maybe Yemen. No. (laughs) I've never charged up the wrong hill, but I did once run full speed down a hill 
when I was a Boy Scout, there were these dead trees with hardly any branches that we were trying to roll down this hill. Oh, no. And <laughs> Like Swiss Family Robinson style? <laughs> right. Like some Ewoks? Yeah, but instead of Ewoks or pirates, there were just maybe people down there camping that we didn't know about. <laughs> I felt bad because it was my idea. Each of us picked up an end of the tree, and the end that he picked up actually had a hive of what they call <gasps> in the High Sierra, they call them meat bees. <gasps> And they are these big... That is the worst name a bug can have. <laughs> They're like these long, fat wasp-type things with hangy bodies. They can pick up really heavy loads and just sort of dangle away with oh. them like helicopters. And they just start coming out. And both of us run down the hill. And it's the only time in my life where I have ripped my shirt off, not just with one hand, but also running at full speed on a 45 degree incline. So while being pursued by bees, you were like, how can I get more skin exposure? I got stung in my armpit, which is why I instinctively pulled off any shielding. There's a lesson in there. <laughs> Beware of Ewoking, lest ye be Ewoked. <laughs> we should start taking jokes you've told and laugh tracking them with your laugh. I'll do that. At some point between now and the end of the podcast, I'll do that. I'll do that to myself. Like if I can just hear like five Kellens laughing simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm going to spend way too much time putting that together. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now for our random fact round. So someone accused her of getting plastic surgery, and here was the response she wrote. Full disclosure, here's a list of the procedures I've had done. Eye browning, nose lengthening. I get my teeth lightly hennaed each month to give them their amber luster. I don't have Botox. Unfortunately, I'm allergic. Instead, I have monthly injections of bromodialone, a farm-strength rat poison. At another point, she talks about men like Christopher Hitchens or Jerry Lewis who claim that women aren't funny. And she says this quote that I just love. It's an impressively arrogant move to conclude that just because you don't like something, it is empirically not good. I don't like Chinese food, but I don't write articles trying to prove it doesn't exist. (laughs) And for our final random fact, Kellen is going to tell two SNL audition stories. So Tina Fey tells this great story about being hired for Saturday Night Live. She got an interview with Lorne Michaels. She said she she was so nervous for this, and the, the advice that she got was, don't finish Lauren's sentences. So she she walks in feeling prepared. And the first thing he says to her is, so you're from... And she says that she waited for like at least 10 seconds and she couldn't, she couldn't handle it anymore. She just said, Darby, Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania, right as he was answering. Oh, no. And then that's all she could think about for the rest of the interview. But... Obviously, everything worked out. So my story, my story is a little different. In 2017, I was contacted by people from SNL who had seen me at at a comedy festival in Montreal. So I got invited to do a a preliminary audition in Los Angeles, uh, which blew my mind. It was amazing. It had never been like on my, what do they call that board where you you put stickers and stuff of all your future visions. Obviously, I have one. It was never on my vision board to be on SNL or to have a vision board. But I was honored to to even be asked to audition. So I go to this audition at the UCB in Los Angeles. I was asked to audition as a, as a writer on the show. Most of the other people auditioning were sketch actors. A sketch actor has to do three characters and a writer. Most of them are just stand-up. So you do five minutes of your best five minutes of stand-up. 
the guy right before me, the end of his act had something to do with handfuls of pretzels and so like they were all over the stage right before <laughs> i came out the lights go out people are clapping and he's hastily like in the dark trying to scoop up as much as he can <laughs> he walks off stage it's- a great audition is one that helps you and hurts the person after you <laughs> so, so then i walk out and just like crunching pretzels underfoot <laughs> and i get to the mic and i was just like It's how I always dreamed it would happen. And it got a laugh, and I was able to just be loose with everything. And uh, I drove away feeling fine, whatever, didn't think about it. And then a few days later, I got the call that the next week they were flying me out to Manhattan to audition uh, at 30, 30 Rockefeller Center. 30 Rock, as uh, as I can call it now that I've been there once. <laughs> so I get there, and now I'm feeling the pressure. It ended up going from, this is something I never thought that I would do, who cares, to then being the most nervous I've ever been for any wow. show that I've done. And this was the most pressure. And it's because they create, I think, Lorne Michaels creates this artificial sense of high stakes, high pressure. It's the closest that he can get to simulating what a performance on live national television is going to be like. So we get there. We go up to the seventh floor, and each of us who are auditioning, we, we get to be in one of the dressing rooms. I was in Kenan Thompson's dressing room. Oh, dope. And they don't, yeah, it smelled like it. <laughs> but they don't tell you when they're going to come get you for it. I ask, and you can tell they've been asked hundreds of times before, so, like, so when am I going on? And they're like, we'll let you know. And I was like, that's probably the answer I'm going to get when I'm done, too. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been there for three hours. Three hours is already long, uh, Like if you've ever watched. <laughs> we know what three hours is. Sorry, I, I feel like I have the right to be condescending now that I've been to 30 Rock. If you don't know, three hours is 180 minutes. And it seemed... So much longer than that because I didn't even I didn't even use my phone. I, I put it on airplane mode. Uh, I went over my set way too many times by myself. Finally, finally, after ten thousand eight hundred seconds, <laughs> there's a knock on the door. They say, "All right, you're on next." Like that's how quick it is. It goes wow. goes from the longest you've ever waited to you're late. <laughs> that's that's how it felt. So as I'm walking, as the woman is walking me to the Saturday Night Live stage, the only advice she gives me is, "Lauren tells the writers not to laugh." And so you walk in, and speaking of this high pressure situation that they build, the 30 Rock studio, the SNL studio, it seats like 300 people, which really isn't that big, even for a studio audience. But no one is in there except for Lorne Michaels and a few of the writers, and they're way off to the left. And she says, just do your act to the camera. So I get up on stage, I'm just looking at this giant TV camera with like this red 2001 Space Odyssey light staring at me, (laughs) and I just have to do my act as if I'm killing And this is no exaggeration. Which you do on our podcast all the time. (laughs) No exaggeration. In my peripheral vision, I just sort of, I can't help but glance over to the small group of people in the dark, except that they have this soft orange light just illuminating Lorne Michaels' face. So it's a room of basically, like, visually for me, there's no one is there except for the floating head of the most powerful man in television. Just staring at me, 
even more blankly than Lord is right now. <laughs> I want it known there are a lot of photos on my walls. There's not just one woman. <laughs> so I, I tell my first joke and a laugh escapes from the group over there. And at that point, I was able to like take a breath and do the rest of my set. Mm. And I got a few more laughs, including my closing joke. It felt amazing. It felt so good. This is a true story. When I, I, I walked out of the doors of 30 Rock into uh, the busy New York City street, and I go, start spreading the news. <laughs> Oh, no. Like 98% sure that I wasn't going to get it, but it still just felt so good that I didn't melt down in yeah. front of in, in front of, you know, these legends that are sitting there. So why did you turn them down? <laughs> <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Bossy Pants. 1, there are no mistakes, only opportunities. 2, don't be afraid to contribute. Three, perfect is overrated. Four, go down the water slide. And five, Chinese food is not funny. (laughs) 